So good morning. If you're visiting today, uh, you picked a great day. Even though we are finishing our series in Revelation, uh, you're going to get the entire book this morning, and it's the great victorious culmination of everything. Um, there's also a little, hopefully a little helpful uh, reading guide that was in your bulletins as well. So I'm not going to get into a lot of that stuff, but hopefully it's a helpful supplement as you continue to read through the book of Revelation uh, as long as you are walking with the Lord. Um, I began this series by talking about why I wanted to go through Revelation. Uh, because it's either overemphasized in some churches or underemphasized in others, and most often misunderstood. Uh, I've had many conversations with many of you who've avoided Revelation, who've, been, who've grown up scared of, of Revelation. Um, or maybe you think that it's not really practical because it's only stuff that only happens in the future. So one of the reasons why I want to do Revelation um, is to show that, like all Scripture, it is profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And because it is in the canon of Scripture, we need it to be complete for every good work. Um, and I'm also, we're, we handled it the way we did, only doing nine weeks, because we don't want to get lost in the trees and lost in the details. I want you guys to see the forest, the vast encouragement uh, that is in the book of Revelation. Um, and one of the other things as well, if people are avoiding a book of the Bible, we've got a problem. So even though this book was not written to us, you have to remember we're not the original audience of the book. It was written for us. Even though it was not written to us, it was written for us, like every book in Scripture. So we have to remember who it was written to and why it was written, so then we can apply it to ourselves. So when we read Revelation, it is profitable for the reader, even if some of the details are confusing. But what is true in this book, it affirms for every reader in every age, and it's meant to be a comfort. Um, these will be on the screen. Here's our, here, here are the big takeaways from the book. Here's what it affirms to every people in every age. First, Jesus Christ, the Lamb, slain for sinners, is also the conquering king. That is the message of the book. And along with it, his, his church, the saints, are his light and his witnesses in a wicked world. This is true whether you live in John's day or Martin Luther's day or our day. It is also true in, in this book that Satan and his allies, they hate Christ and they hate the church. They will pursue, they are pursuing, they will try to persecute, they will try to persuade, and it even seems like they win for a time. Also true in every age and many times in many ways, God is pouring out judgment on this earth. He is warning people of the wrath to come, but the ungodly still will not repent. And this is a true promise to every believer who will ever read this book. Eventually, Christ will destroy his enemies completely on his return. It could be today, come Lord Jesus come, or it could be a thousand years from now. But that is what we take away from this book. And as we've seen, these themes, they are progressively revealed in parallel complementary sections. As we go through this recap in just a moment, I want you to see how this continues to give us the same themes over and over again. The glory and sovereignty of God, the endurance of the saints, the judgment of the wicked, 
the praise of the heavenly hosts, and the final judgment and consummation and restoration of all things. Again and again, we see it from different angles and different vantage points because this, this beautiful, complete picture of redemptive history is painted through the book of Revelation. So let's pray, uh, and then I'm going to take us through a recap. Lord, we praise you for the inspiration of your word. Who are we that you would give us spirit-breathed scriptures to read and to learn from and to guide us and to shape us and to encourage us? Lord, forgive us when we are so selfish and we read the scriptures and we try to find what it means to us first. We make everything our own personal revelation. Lord, would we seek to understand how you are glorifying yourself and exalting your son through your scriptures so that the church may be encouraged in who you are and what you've done and what you promised to us. Lord, I just uh, pray for this congregation this morning that your spirit would work in hearts and minds just to give assurance to the saints, to give us comfort and affliction, to call us to endure, to look to the Lamb on the throne, and you would give discomfort to the unbelievers, to the goats. If there is anyone here this morning still trusting in their own righteousness, still betting that you owe them something, would you make them miserable in their sin? Would they see the wrath that is to come and call out in repentance? Lord, our desire is that you be glorified in this church and in every church across the globe as your word is faithfully proclaimed, as the gospel is preached and applied. And Lord, help us to be faithful week in, week out, day in, day out, year in, year out, until Christ returns, until that glorious day when we see him face to face. And it's in his name we pray, amen. All right, so open your Bibles to the book of Revelation. In the first chapter of the book of Revelation, we are going to do a tour de force through the book of Revelation, building up to this great consummation. So if you're turning back to the first page, uh, remember where we begin. Remember that John was in prison on the island of, of, of Patmos. He was inspired um, by the Holy Spirit. And he was writing to seven churches in Asia. I want to um, pick up in verse 3. He's writing to these, these churches to tell them of the things that are to come. To tell them that it is blessed to read this book. But most importantly, to know who the Son of Man is and know that he's coming. Verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. For the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before the throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. 
Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierce him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. When you read this book, when we go through this book, never lose sight of that vision. Because so many people, as we said before, they get, they get lost in all the details in the middle. And What's this? What's this? What's this? Keep your eyes on Christ. He is the one who does not change. Because if you are his, it does not matter what happens in these other scenes. All right, so... John writes this, the Holy Spirit inspires him to encourage the seven churches. We see those in chapter 2 and chapter 3. This recap is going to move faster from here on out. Um, it encourages the, the churches to endure in the world of persecution and temptation and, and, and promises them glory to come as a conqueror's promise to each one of the churches. That's also in your notes. First and foremost, if you need to endure... If you're going to face tribulation, if you're going to face temptation, if you're going to face persecution, what is the most important thing you need? What is first and foremost? Chapter 4, the throne of the living God. Remembering who God is. That he is holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty. Worthy are you, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. You created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. If you keep that focus the things on earth will grow strangely dim. And so as you're remembering the throne, don't just remember the eternal God, remember the eternal God, but remember that the eternal God took on flesh and became a lamb who was slain for your sins. The same God who sits on the throne welcomes the lamb, God in the flesh, who is worthy to sit on it who has finished his task on earth and who sits at the right hand in glory. Remember the throne, remember the lamb, because the lamb's going to open some seals in chapter 6 and chapter 7. These seals are, are revealing what is to come. These seals are going to talk about judgment that is going to be poured out on the earth, that is, that is a uh, promise of God's recompense against the wicked. But all throughout, there is still worship in heaven. The heavenly hosts are not worried. All throughout, the militant saints on earth are reassured. Look at chapter 6, verse 9. When he opened the, the fifth seal, I saw under the altar that the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. This is the undercurrent of the book. If John is, is writing to the church in the first century Rome who is facing very real persecution, who is very uh, really being killed, what is the encouragement to those who might lose their life? What is the encouragement to those who cry out to the Lord? Verse 10, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe, the righteousness of Christ, and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. God still has lost sheep that he's bringing in. Those who were killed as they themselves had been. This is the encouragement to the militant church, but also the promise going to chapter 7 of the triumphant church. Verse 9, 
After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is the encouragement to all saints of all ages. And the triumphant saints continue. And John has a question in in verse 13. One of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know, um, if a uh, spiritual being, if an angel ever appears to you and asks you a question, say, Sir, you know. That, that, that is the appropriate answer. If the Lord ever speaks to you, uh, Lord, you know. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made white in the blood of the Lamb. This is the church triumphant. Look at this this, this language here, this is worship of consummation, and we're only in chapter 7. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him and, and night and day in his temple. And he sits in the throne, with, uh, and he who sits in the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither shall they thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor the scorching heat, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Sound familiar? We're going to look at that in chapter 21 and chapter 22. You get the, the, the promise of consummation in the middle of the, of the book. Why? Because if you're persecuted, you need as many reminders as you can get that there is glory coming, that your shepherd has not forgotten about you. He will lead you to living water. And so these seals that he reveals of the things to come, they are revealed in the seals and they are announced, proclaimed in the trumpets uh, in chapters 8 through 11. Now it is announcing, it is warning the world that the wrath is coming and it's preparing the church to be a witness until the seventh trumpet sounds. Let's pick up on the seventh trumpet. Uh, This points to the end of the age. The last trumpet sounding, the uh, final victory, chapter 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there was loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Sound familiar? Also what we're going to look at in 21 and 22. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you. Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, and he has already come. For you have taken your great power, you've begun to reign. The nations raged, past tense, but your wrath came, past tense. And the time for the dead to be judged, past tense. And for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened. And the Ark of the Covenant was seen within its temple. There were flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and earthquake and heavy hail. Sound like consummation again? This rhythm and this this pattern, everything is is moving toward consummation. The picture that Paul gives gives us is that of birth pains. The, the, The groanings of the earth, the contractions getting closer and closer and closer. And every time we see judgment, We think we're one day closer. It is getting closer. The consummation is coming. Then we get into our next section, beginning in chapter 12. This kind of peels back the curtain to the spiritual conflict that's going on behind the scenes, and we introduce the characters of the second half of the book. 
the woman who will give birth to the child and the dragon. The dragon who hates the child and wants to kill him and wants to destroy him and uh, pursues him. And the woman who is loved and nourished by God in the wilderness. This is the, 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 the church age. This is always true. That the son who finishes his job is on the throne. The woman is being pursued by the dragon, but he can't have her because she belongs to the Lord. And the dragon continues to pursue the woman. Chapter 13, he's got a beast from the sea. Persecution. He's got a beast from, from land. False prophets and uh, religious persecution. But yet, the saints endure. There's another picture of glory and the, the church triumphant in chapter 14. But there's a call to the church militant, those on earth, verse 12 and 13 of chapter 14. Here is the call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Lord, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Because even though God's wrath is coming, the saints rest now in a blessed assurance. And what's at the end of this chapter? The final harvest, the final judgment, where the wheat is gathered and the chaff is destroyed. So again, we're moving toward consummation. The only thing left after the final judgment is consummation. Our next section, 15 and uh, 16, the seals reveal, the trumpets announce, and the bowls pour out the wrath of God on the whole earth. And we're reminded that God is just for doing it. God is righteous in everything he does, but why does God pour out his wrath on the earth? Chapter 16, verse 5. In the middle of the verse here. Just as you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you just are you, O Holy One, for you brought these judgments. Why? For they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. That is what they deserve. And I heard from the altar saying, yes, the Lord, the Almighty, true and just are his judgments. He does it because he is jealous for his people. He does it to vindicate his name. This section also ends in consummation language. In a great final battle that, as we saw in chapter 20, leads to the final judgment, leads to consummation. The next vision, beginning in chapter 17, the next section, we kind of zero in on one of Satan's collaborators, one of his, his influencers, Babylon, the great prostitute, who is known for her sexual immorality. And because she has great witness on all the nations... She has, draw, she has draw, uh, dragged many people into her sexual immorality. Her fall will be great. Her defeat will be so uh, earth-shattering that everyone on earth will wail and everyone on earth and in heaven will rejoice. That's where we pick up in chapter 19. That in heaven they are rejoicing because Babylon has fallen. They are rejoicing because the Lamb has slain her. And then the marriage supper of the Lamb, the, the bride coming together. And then Christ returns. He returns to judge the living and the dead. He returns to a battle that was waged against him. He returns to a battle that he will win. He returns to an enemy that he will defeat. And his robe is dripped in their blood. 
That also is a picture of the final battle and the final judgment. The only thing that is remaining is the consummation. Again, our next section that we looked at in depth last week in chapter 20. For a thousand years, this, this, this period that no one person will experience, that no one can count, this long age, Satan is bound. He can no longer deceive the nations. The gospel goes forth freely, and Christ reigns with his saints until the final defeat of the Satan, and until the defeat of his armies, and until their judgment. That's chapter 20. Now we're all caught up. Christ has conquered his enemies, the dead are resurrected, judgment is complete, and the saints in the Lamb's book of life inherit their long-awaited homeland. The entire book is building up to now. The promise given to Abraham, I will make you a father of many nations. A promise of, of land, a promise of seed, of offspring is now coming together. This also is where the book of Hebrews builds. I want to look at a couple chapters in the, or excuse me, a couple verses in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11, we know Hebrews chapter 11, the, the hall of faith. But why is the hall of faith there? Showing that everyone before Christ trusted in Christ, but everyone before Christ walked with anticipation of something that was to come. So picking up in verse 13 of chapter 11. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, the land and the seed, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland, aren't we all? If they had been thinking of that land out of which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to call them their God, for he has prepared for them a city. This was always the plan. This was always the promise. This was the hope of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, and so on and so forth. This is also our hope. Look at chapter 12, verse 22. I'm splashing water everywhere. It's not the first time I've knocked something over with my hands. Um, Verse 22, as we're reading this book, right now, if you are in Christ, you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Do you know, brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, you are a citizen of the heavenly Jerusalem right now. This is already language, even though it is not yet fulfilled. The heavenly Jerusalem and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering. Great language. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now there's a bit of a contrast here. See that you not, do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Okay, don't make the mistakes of previous generations. Heed my words. Trust in Christ. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more will I shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. There's an old has passed away, new heavens, new earth are coming. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of the things that are shaken, the old heaven, the old earth. That is, the things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may, be, may remain. We look forward to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Verse 28, Therefore let us be grateful 
for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Our inheritance in Christ is his kingdom. His kingdom will not end. His kingdom cannot be shaken. That's why our trust and our hope is not in here. This is not our homeland. Something better is coming. And in the next chapter, one brief reminder in verse 14. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now this is a new beginning with a new humanity because we have a better Adam who remained faithful. This is the consummation of all redemptive history. This is the consummation of all the scriptures. This is what the the saints of old were looking for. This is our home. This is the home of all the saints all over the globe. And I am going to apologize in advance. I cannot do this justice. I'm going to fail miserably at showing you how beautiful and glorious and awesome this is. If I had six months and preached on it every week, I could still not do it justice. Our minds can't comprehend how incredible this is. Our hearts can't take in how how awesome it will be to be with our God. And so we're going to fail miserably, but we're going to have fun doing it. All right, so... Um, for those of you who grew up in church and uh, thought that you're going to be in heaven with Jesus forever, uh, you know, playing on, on a harp in, in, in clouds, you missed the point. They missed the point. Praise God, we're not just floating around in, on, on uh, clouds forever. But what is amazing is that this earth, the new earth, will take on the character of heaven. The glory of God will transform the rocks and the trees and the waters and the animals. And we get to enjoy all of it. Chapter 21 of Revelation. We sung this song earlier. I love it. Anytime someone writes a song that uh, is word for word from Scripture, we will try to use it and, and, and sing it, especially when we're in the text. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. This is, this is recreation language, new creation language, a better Eden with a better Adam. Remember what Jesus promised us, Matthew 24, 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Remember what Peter told us in 2 Peter chapter 3, that this is what God is doing, and he's doing it for the sake of his people, his elect. Chapter 3, verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved? And the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to this promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is for the people of God. There's nothing to fear here. There is great wonder and excitement. Because he is preparing this for his his people. The first promise here is that the sea will be no more. If you've been in this study, the, the, the sea represents death. And, and, and darkness. 
They weren't scuba diving in that day. They were terrified of what was under the water. But there's no more of that. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This is our eternal home. Our eternal home is a new city, a holy city, a place that Christ has been preparing for his bride. Our union with him is complete. The bride is now home. She has left her mother and father, and she now cleaves to her bridegroom. This is her walking out of the ceremony and the petals and, and everything, all of the, uh, the beauty as the wedding is ready to be consummated is all seen in this, this picture. And then the great reminding promise, verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. If you know your Bible, you know how incredible this is. Because this was always God's design. The initial design was in Eden. What was the, the best part about Eden? Was that Adam got to walk with God. That he got to dwell with him without sin, without, without stain, without corruption. But of course corruption came in. When God took his people out of Egypt, what did he do as a reminder and a, cons and a confirmation that he loves his people? He built a tabernacle. What does tabernacle mean? It means dwelling. Why? What was important about the tabernacle? That within it was the Holy of Holies. This is where God dwells. I will always dwell with you. Keep my commandments and you will live. And when they went to the land, they built a temple where God's holiness dwelt with his people. But again, sin won out. And they rejected God and his laws, and they walked away from him. And for hundreds of years, the prophets called them back, but no one came back. And what did God do? He took on flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. He dwelt among his people. Christ tabernacled on earth. God walked with man so that God could take the place of man and pay for their sin. So that God could redeem a new man, a new bride, fit for him. And then, his people, through sending his spirit, now become temples. Now become the dwelling place of God. We brothers and sisters are living stones a dwelling place for God so that we might give acceptable worship. But there will be a day soon when the dwelling place of God will be with man and we'll be in the same place. And as we're going to see in chapter 22, there will be no temple and we will see him face to face, getting ahead of ourselves. Here's the other promise, verse 4. He'll wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The curse is gone. Here's another great promise about glory. You won't ever have to think about sin again. You will forget about sin. Praise God indeed. The former things have passed away. Everything stained by the curse will be dissolved and refined by the fire so that the new can come. And we pick up in verse 5. It brings us full circle back to the beginning of the book. 
He who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. It is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. And now we get to the final division of man. The harvest has happened. Who will inherit this land? Verse 7, the one who conquers will have his heritage. And I will be his God. Notice the wording here. And he will be my son. We truly are sons of the living God in Christ. This is not just a place for citizens. This is a place for sons. This is a family inheritance. This is the land of conquerors because Christ has conquered. His people conquer. This is a place for sons. People have been adopted by his blood. People who are united with Christ. This is not a place for frauds. Verse 8, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all the liars. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. There are only two options, to conquer or suffer. Are you a son? Or are you a poser? Are you one who will face suffering? You'll suffer in sulfur forever. Sulfur is nasty. Like for five seconds, imagine smelling sulfur and smelling burning flesh forever, and it never stops. So now, that's the picture of the new heaven, new earth. And we're going to zoom in in this, in this next section in the new Jerusalem. And we will move a little faster through this, uh, because this is a, a lot of um, imagery and symbolism and numerology. But the first thing I want you to see, verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls. This is still part of what has been revealed to John. Full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me high in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city coming down out of heaven uh, from God. Here's the first thing. This city is a place and a people. The, the heavenly Jerusalem it is not composed of roads and uh, houses. It is, it, is composed, it is composed of saints. This is imagery to help us understand. It is a great city, and it comes down from heaven. It is the, the, the already promise that you are citizens right now. You have already come to that heavenly Jerusalem. That is where your citizenship is. That is where your identity is. And it is beautiful to God. It is a bride prepared for her husband. Now, we're not going to get into all of the uh, details here. Verse 11, uh, the glory of God, radiance, rare jewels, jasper, and crystal, crystal and all these uh, numbers, and, and uh, gold, and more jewels to come later on. Here's what we need to know. This place is beautiful. This place is absolutely stunning. It is glorious. It is perfect. It's got high walls and wide walls. It is safe. No one is ever coming in. It is the glory of God on full display in his people. Now there's a bit of numerology in the middle, verses 12 through 14. Uh, 
the numbers of the symbols we've been dealing with all along. Lots of 12s here. What do you remember uh, about 12? 12 is the, the uh, completion, the, the, the fullness of the people of God. The 12 patriarchs, the uh, 12 apostles. Um, what does the number four mean? So we've got four sides, north, south, east, and west. It is the uh, completion, the uh, fullness of all the earth. All the people of God from all the earth. Three gates on each side. Three times four. You know what that, 12, 12, 12, 12, from all the earth. This beautiful symbolism, this amplified from all the earth, for all the, 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 the peoples, they are coming into this city. Everyone from every tongue, tribe, and nation is coming into this city. This, the, the, the picture continues to be built in, in verse 15. He begins measuring it. We saw this at the beginning of, of chapter 11. God measures the temple in chapter 11 as he measures the temple here. When you measure something, that means you know it. God knows every square inch. God knows every bit of it. God takes perfect care for every bit of this. And this is uh, incredibly symbolic. Because if you notice the details here, this is a giant cube. It's a giant square. You know what else was a cube? Old Testament scholars, the Holy of Holies. Our high priest went into the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God that no one but God himself and the worthy high priest could enter into once. Our high priest enters into the Holy of Holies once for all. And so now this perfectly symmetrical cube is an entire city. And because we don't use lengths like, like stadia, let me help you out here. This is a city that has 1,400-mile sides. This is Miami to Boston on each side. That's the city of the living God. No one has ever seen a city that big. And that, the dwelling place of God, is now with man. Is that, is that literal? Maybe. I don't know. You can fit a lot of people in that. But the purpose is to show how great and glorious and massive this is. And what God is doing and has done and will do through his son. And so we see the jewels and the gold and all that stuff. It just shows us our God is rich beyond measure. And this is what Jesus promised his disciples. Remember back in John 14, where the disciples are under, understandably upset that Jesus was going to leave. And they didn't, they didn't know why. Why can't we go to be with you? They couldn't see what we know now. Jesus is going to prepare something better. As every bride, good bridegroom does, he goes to prepare a place for his bride. And what better than to go to his father's house, because my father's rich. Chapter 14, verse 1, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. This is the promise of the Holy Spirit. This is what the Holy Spirit seals in us, the reminder and assurance that Christ, our bridegroom, has gone before us. He is preparing a place. And what we're seeing now at the end of Revelation, here's the place. This massive, glorious city covered in jewels and streets of gold. And you know the way to where I am going. 
Because right after that, what does he say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the gospel promise. Come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest, and I will give you eternal rest in my Father's house. And so getting back into Revelation 21, at the end, the similar imagery of God being with his people. Remember we talked about tabernacle and dwelling. But in this place, there's no temple. Why would this city not need a temple? Because what's the purpose of the temple? To go into the presence of God. You're already in the presence of God. To offer sacrifices. The final sacrifice has already been offered. To have a place of mediation between God and man. Christ has already mediated between God and man. We don't need a temple. We have Christ. Anyone ever tells you you need another temple, I have to say it. We have Christ. We don't need a temple. No one needs a temple. There will, no, there will be no eternal temple. And the beauty of it is that no one unclean will ever walk in it. He is its, he is its light. And who is this for? Those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Before the foundation of the earth, elect from every nation, yet one or all the earth. This is their home. They will be with their God in his perfect holiness. Chapter 22. This river of life is prophesied in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, uh, Zechariah, the Psalms, to name a few. And we can't get into it. It was also promised back in chapter 7 that he, as our shepherd, will lead us to living water. We also remember what Jesus promised us when he was on earth. John chapter 7. When he walks among Jerusalem, he says this, John 7, 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The living water that will nourish all of new heavens and new earth forever is flowing in our hearts right now. And John translates for us in verse 39 when he says he was speaking about the Spirit because the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. So what do we know about this living water? It is for the people of God that flows out of our hearts. And one day, it will, the, the Spirit's nourishing work will nourish all of, of, of new creation because we will be purified and glorified as Christ is now. I mean, all this imagery is amazing, and I'm just scratching, scratching the surface. This, again, is recreation language. Remember what was lost in the garden. They couldn't eat from a tree of life. They were cut off from the rivers. But now there's a new tree. And the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, 12 again, for all the nations, for all the people of God, yielding its fruit in each month. And the leaves of the tree were healing for the nations. This is a promise fulfillment from Ezekiel. And no longer will be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship them. Here's the other amazing thing about this. Is that the unapproachable throne from chapter 4, that no one, remember in chapter 5, no one was worthy to go before this throne. That throne is now on earth. And that throne, people can approach freely. And what's even more amazing, they will be in it, they will be his servants, they will worship him, and they will see his face. Again, Old Testament scholars 
Moses on the Mount of Sinai begged to see God's face and was given a glimpse of his back. And he glowed, and people couldn't even look at him because he saw the back of God. We will be able to look at God face to face. With his throne, drinking living water, eating from the tree of life. Amen. Hallelujah. And the lamb. We don't need sun. Christ will shine forevermore. He will be the light of this city, and we will reign in glorious splendor forever and ever and ever. This is awesome. Um, this is a new creation, but not a new, new idea. Um, Isaiah anticipated this. Isaiah is much like Revelation in that the promises to the people of God are interspersed with judgment against Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Israel. Final fulfillment and um, temporary judgment. Encouragement for the faithful and judgment for the wicked. Um, there should be a bunch of Isaiah slides listed. I am not going to be able to get through all those. We, we read from Isaiah 65 earlier. Um, read through those on your own. They are incredible. And I just scratched the surface. There are so many in, in Isaiah. This should be in your notes, right? If they are, uh, if not, take a picture of that. Um, because what all the uh, prophets were looking forward to, and Isaiah is full of this, this anticip anticipation for all redemptive history, creation has been groaning, and now here it is at the end of Revelation. And now we end as we should. Chapter 22, verse 6. Because we know what is to come, because we know the glory of our heavenly home, we wait in anticipation. And you hear the words again. They are trustworthy and true. We're a doubtful people. We need reminding. We need to hear this is true, this is good. You can put your hope and faith in these words. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has shown has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Jesus is coming soon, brothers and sisters. You're going to see it three times at the end of this chapter. Why? Because he is coming like a thief in the night. And we should never be asleep. We should always be awake. And why is it said three times? Because every believer who has ever lived... We should wake up every day like, is today the day? And live like today is the day. And never lose, lose the anticipation and the fervor that Jesus is coming soon. This is why we read the book. And also, blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now, how do we keep the words of the prophecy of this book? Right away in the next section, um, John misses, misses the, the point and he worships an angel. Number one, how do we keep the words of the prophecy of this book? Worship true and living God. We see how great and glorious he is on his throne. We see how righteous and true are all his, his, his judgments. We also see things in the book to wash our garments in the blood of the Lamb, to be completely reminded and encouraged in the gospel. 
We see the reminders of loving his testimony. They love their testimony more than their own lives, even unto death. The call to come out of Babylon don't have anything to do with the sexual immorality of the world. The call to stay awake. This is how we keep the words of the book. We put our hope and trust in Christ. We follow him. We live lives of obedience. When Daniel received prophecies, it was told to be sealed up because they're not yet to come. But look at verse 10. Do not seal up the words of this prophecy of this book, for the time is near. This is why we need to teach and preach this book. And what will happen in these last days? Let the evildoers still do evil and the filthy still be filthy. But you, the righteous, how do we keep the words of the book? Do what is right. To the Holy One, do what is holy. Brothers and sisters, we are to remember the hope, not the fear. We are to remember that in Christ we are righteous, covered in his character, his good works. We are holy. We are set apart for his purposes. And he reminds again in verse 12, second time, behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. And then the final beatitude, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. This is the gospel promise. If Jesus Christ is your savior, Jesus Christ has died for you, his blood covers you and you are clean. You can walk through the front door. You don't have to try to climb over the wall. You don't have to sneak around the back door. You get to walk confidently in the blood of Christ through the front door. Blessed are those who wash their blood in the robes. This is the promise that salvation and eternity is ours. And along with the final beatitude is the final call to repentance. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. This book is also to be a warning if you don't repent, it is death, it is torment, you are outside. And this is also a call to the unbelievers in repentance. Jesus could come back today. He's coming soon. Today is the day of the repentance. Today is the day of faith and trust and salvation in Christ. He goes on to say in verse 16, I have sent my angel to testify about these things to the churches. Remember, we talk about the seven churches representing all churches. The promise to all believers everywhere. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. I'm everything that the Old Testament looked forward to. And here in verse 17 is what every believer should be able to say confidently and boldly. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And the one who desires to take water of life without price. Brothers and sisters, this is our gospel hope. We don't have to fear Jesus is coming. We look forward to it. This is what we offer when we tell people the good news. He gives living water. Are you thirsty? Come to him. Are you hungry? Come to him. You don't have to pay anything. You don't have to do anything. He's already done it. You can come to him freely. Return. Or turn to him. Turn from your 
sins and your sexual immorality. Verse 18. This is also why we teach the book. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of the book. If anyone adds to them, we don't bring our own opinions into the book. God will add to them the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of this book, we must preach it in its fullness. Of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and the holy city, which are described in this book. And then for the third and final time, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Why three times? Because we need to get the picture. Just like God is holy, holy, holy. Just like in order for Peter to get the picture, he had to deny Christ three times and then be reassured three times and then receive the vision three times in Acts. We're stubborn. Our heads are thick. Get it through your head. He's coming again. It is absolutely certain. And the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. This is how our Bible ends. What should that do in the, heart of, in the hearts of Christians? What should the, the, the promise and the benediction instill within us? Think about it. If you think about Jesus coming again, and you think about you having God's grace with you now, until he comes, until the day when no more grace is needed, because all sin and death is wiped away, what people of encouragement and hope we should be. What people of anticipation and excitement we should be. So, closing with this, here's our conclusion. Every person who has ever lived has no problem believing that this is not how things should be. There has never been a person who walked the earth and said, yep, everything's right. This is exactly how it should be. I want to stay here forever. We know it is inside us. I wish there was a better place. Even pagans know that. That's why we're so discontent. Because we're always looking for something better, always looking to move or change our circumstances or look for the uh, greener grass. But this is a book of hope and clarity for answers to pilgrims. We're sojourners. We know that this world is not right. But we know that this world is not our home. We know there is a better place. And Revelation peels back the curtain on the spiritual conflict, the the. The uh, torment against God's people is never outside of the sovereignty and providence of God. God is working all this toward his redemption and his consummation. And as we've done many times before, when you read Revelation, keep John 16, 13 in mind. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Um, so I'm going to leave this up on the screen. This is in your uh, outline, too, or your, your, your handout, too. But just kind of take this away. Understanding Revelation teaches us a few things. I want you to see the forest. See the glorious forest and not get caught up and concerned with every tree. Remember that the purpose of this book, number two, is to comfort afflicted believers as they endure evil. And I hope this encourages you to read all your Bible, especially the Old Testament. All of the fulfillment, everything culminating in this. And Satan and his influences and everything he tries, they rage, but they cannot win. G.K. Beale has a, um, last illustration, but G.K. Beale has this great picture of a spider web. 
that all of these images in Revelation are like a spider web. You ever see a bug get caught in a spider web? And he thinks he kind of frees himself, he struggles loose, and then he grabs onto something else to brace himself, and he's stuck over here. Satan continues to try to free himself. He thinks he can get, get, get loose, but he never can. God's sovereignty is an all-encompassing uh, spider web that none of us can ever escape. And if you are in him, you are safe. And if you are against him, you are dead meat. Because we know this, Christ loves his elect. And because he conquers, we will conquer. And so saints, as we think about approaching the table, I hope you can confidently and joyfully say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray.